you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 8? Nehemiah chapter 8, where we left off last week at verse 12. We're going to pick up today in this story. Last week's title was the title that you see on the screen, Shaped by the Book. And this is part two. So I I really got creative on the title of this message, part two. And um, the reason that I chose to go ahead and let it have that continuity is because as we see, this is this is a this is a flowing time period that we're looking at. And it's an extended uh, record here of what happens as the people of God Now that the walls have been built, now that the temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, the gates have been hung, the leadership has been appointed, and now they need to pick up the worship of God in a more pointed and obedient way. And we learned last week, just briefly, I'll reiterate, that this was a gathering of the people of God that was, first of all, a word-centered gathering. It was centered upon the word, and we're going to look at that even more Hence the title, Shaped by the Book. But it was also a, wor- a worship field gathering. And we, we learned that, that true worship rises on the waves of truth. So as we look into the Word of God, at the revelation of God, we, we see His who He is, and we see what He is like, and what He has commanded of us. And the more that we see and understand about God the more that we are filled with affections, or you might call them emotions. Same thing. And we are, but our emotions are to rise up on the waves of truth and not any other means if it is to be true worship. And certainly that's what happened with this group. They were word-centered, and therefore they were worship-filled. And the last thing we looked at was the fact that this gathering was sobering and yet joyful. It was sobering and yet joyful. And the reason was because as the people began to hear from the Word of God, as the Word of God was read in their presence, they were so convicted because their forefathers had broken the commandments of God, they had broken the commandments of God, and they were extremely uh, broken and contrite because of that fact. That they had broken God's commands and God had, had punished them. They, remember, they were carried away as captives to Babylon. And after 70 years, God had brought them back. And it, everything was joyful. But when they heard the word, they knew that they were guilty. And so it was a very sobering moment to come under the hearing of the word of God. And yet their leaders instructed them, because they have a long way to go in the process of developing as, a, as the people of God again, they've got to start almost as it were from ground zero with discipleship, understanding what the Bible says, what the law demands of them, so that they could be obedient. And the, their, their leaders knew that this was going to take a long time. They were there for six hours, and that was just on the first day. And so they told them, now, don't be sorrowful. And really what they said, we closed on this last week, really what they were saying is, don't be overcome with sorrow. Recognize your sin, yes, but rejoice in the mercy and the grace of God. And go your way, he says, they instructed them, and to enjoy the provisions that God had given 
For the joy, he says, of the Lord is your strength. And so we're going to pick it up today in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the That the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm and other leafy trees to make booths. And as it is written. So the people went out and. Brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from for from the days of Jeshua, Joshua, the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And with earth on their heads and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So did you notice that their sins and the iniquities of their fathers and they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter Of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood all these guys. And they said, stand up and bless the Lord your God for from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Let me pray with you. Lord, our Father, our God who is in heaven, we bow to praise you this morning for who you are, the true and the living God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of the church, your bride, your people. And as we bow this morning, we recognize, O Lord, that we are sinners. And we could spend the rest of our time today Confessing our, our sins, our many sins. Sins of neglect where we have neglected to do what you've commanded us clearly to do. Those sins of omission, forgive us God. Sins of commission where we actively are doing things and having attitudes and thinking thoughts that we shouldn't have and we shouldn't do. And we pray for forgiveness of those as well. As we hear your word today, I pray, we pray that you would come and you would speak to our hearts. 
that the power of your presence will illuminate these words. That they would become more than the words today from the voice of a mere man. But your words that speak powerfully and effectually into our hearts and minds and lives. Help us to be a people, O God, that are shaped by the book. We pray in Jesus' name and amen. So, last week, word-centered, worship-filled, sobering, yet joyful gathering. This morning, I see here another three ways that the word of God shapes the people of God. And I can't overstress, I don't believe, or overemphasize, I can't overstress the reality that in Nehemiah 8 and 9, we began to see a pattern that would, that would continue on down through un, until this morning. That the, the scriptures would shape the gatherings of the people of God. That, that as, they, as they came together, it wasn't just individuals coming to offer a sacrifice and, and, and give the sacrifice to the Levite or to the priest. And they would go into uh, the altar and offer the sacrifice. No, this was, this was a gathering of the people of God. And what they gathered around was the Word of God. And it, it shaped everything about the gathering. Number one. The Word of God, or the Word, directs godly leaders. The Word directs godly leaders. As we look in verse 13, we see that truth. Chapter 8, verse 13. Again, it says, on the second day, the the heads, these leaders of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, who was also a scribe and a priest, in order to study the words of the law. So the first thing we see in verse 13, that the leadership of the people of God were shaped by the word. They were directed by the word. They were instructed by the word. And I submit to you this morning, that that is something that is worth lingering on. That what you should what you should expect from your pastor or pastors, your leaders in the local church is no different. That the word of God would have a central and preeminent place in their lives. What you need of godly leaders is to be directed by the word of God. It's been said in times past, and I believe it, that good leaders are always learners. Good leaders are always learners. Because if you think about it, especially for a pastor like myself who has to stand in front of the same congregation of people week in and week out, you know, it would be, it would be very easy for me to exhaust what I know. <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't take very long for that to happen. So if I'm not constantly learning more from the Word, 
and more of how to speak the word of God into our present day context than I would just quickly exhaust all uh, relative material very, very quickly. Good leaders are learners. Think about our think about our man Ezra. He was he was a leader, and and if you think back in Ezra, we preached through that one in Ezra chapter seven verse ten. You find the words, "For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel," and that's what made Ezra such a powerful leader. Don Deal, who was one of my mentors, and even to this day, his words always ring in my mind. Have you ever had anybody that impacted you like that? I hope you do, and if you don't, I hope you'll soon find one. I hope someone will come along, some godly Christian that will impact your life. And he always said to me, he said, all that you are is what you are in secret. It's never what you do out front, in front of the congregation. It's always Who you are and what you do in secret, that's who you really are. And that will determine the effectiveness of your ministry. Your life will never rise above. Your spirituality as children of God this morning will never rise above who you are in secret. And so we have to constantly and continuously be learning and bringing ourselves captive, as it were, to the words of God. You see, the Bible teaches us that it's actually the fool who refuses instruction and correction. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtains guidance. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Good leaders are learners. And as we see in our text in verse 13, these leaders were godly leaders because they gathered themselves around the book. This group of men gathered around the Bible. And what does it say explicitly that they came around the Bible to do? In order to study. The words of the law. They wanted to study it. They wanted to meditate on it. They wanted to be able to understand what it said. So that they can in turn articulate the truths of the law of God to the congregation. To the people of God over which they were made overseers. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul instructs us to be learners and especially leaders. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 13 to 16. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things and listen to this. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Immerse yourself in the teachings of Scripture. Immerse yourself in them. He goes on to say, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so there was a need for these leaders to study the word of God. 
And you say, well, I guess I'm off the hook because I'm not a leader in the church. Well, you're not off the hook just yet. Because in order for you to live the Christian life, you are, every single one of us, are leaders in a certain sense. I always tell uh, students this because they're, they're so fresh and they love to hear leadership lessons. And I always tell them this. Leadership is influence and initiative. Influence and initiative. Anytime you take the initiative to move in a direction, that's leadership. So if you gather with your peer group or at work or your family and, and we're going to figure out what we're going to do, what are we going to do? We're going to watch TV, we're going to play a game, we're going to, you know, whatever you're going to do. Whoever is the one in the room that, that says, let's do this, they're taking initiative, they are being a leader. And so all of you sitting in here today have moments in your life when you take initiative to see things through. And when you do, you're a leader. And if you're going to be a godly leader, and if you're going to be a God-honoring leader with your initiative, then you need to study the Word of God so that you too can lead people to understand its truths. And the second way that you're a leader is not only by taking initiative, but by your influence. By your influence. You can even passively not be taking initiative, not be leading out front. But your influence may be a silent influence, but I assure you it has an impact. You today are either, in one very real sense, you are leading people to Jesus Christ through your influence or you are leading them away from Jesus Christ by your influence. And that's why he says to Timothy there, keep a close watch on yourself, on yourself, what you do, and your teaching, what you say. It is often the case, we see it over and over in Scripture and even today, that where there is moral decline, as we step back and look at a group of people or an individual person who is slipping down the slippery slope of moral decline and decay into sin, it is often the case that before that decline even started, they began to neglect the Word of God. Do you read the Word of God every day? Do you study it? Do you meditate on it? Do you seek to memorize it? Do you pray it back to God as petitions for Him to grant grace so that you may be obedient to God's Word? Are you like the psalmist in Psalm 1 who says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. He's not like that. But his delight, the Bible says, Psalm 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, God's Word, does He meditate day and night. And He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever He does will prosper. Is that you? If we are not in the Word, studying the Word then we are not going to be the fruitful trees by the water for God's glory. So that's the first thing that we see about the Word, is it directs them as leaders. Number two, 
the word, secondly, calls for remembering God's faithfulness. Remembering God's faithfulness. The word of God calls us to remember the faithfulness of God. Now this serves as a mighty, mighty force in the Christian life. When you remember the faithful, covenant-keeping love of your God, it will strengthen you and help you. And the results are very clear. If you look in verses 14 and 15, it says they found that it was written in the law that God commanded Moses to tell the people that they should dwell in booths, these these little tabernacles, these little lean-tos that they would build during the feast of the seventh month. This was the feast of the in-gathering. This was the, the, latter, uh, the latter year um, harvest. And they were to take these branches and make these little lean-tos so that they could dwell in them. And so what happens is the Word of God is instructing the people of God to remember the faithfulness of God. Because this particular festival was a, was a time of the year when they would remember how God delivered the people from Egypt and brought them into the wilderness And they wandered in the wilderness and they did not have for 40 years, they did not have the permanent dwellings the way that they would later on. And the way even that many of them were having in Nehemiah's day now that the walls were rebuilt. And so the word calls for remembering God's faithfulness. And the first thing that it resulted in was obedience and application. Obedience and application. So you would be surprised if you haven't done this study before. It's very interesting to me that much of the Bible is actually calling us to remember certain things. Did you know that? Much of the Bible is directly commanding us to remember what God has done in the past with his people, in his people, through his people, for his people, and his glory. And also, more specifically for us, remembering what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We're instructed to do that. And it results in obedience and application. Verse 16 says that's exactly what the people did. The second result of this call from the Word of God is it resulted in great celebration. Great celebration. Look at verse 17. Chapter 8 and verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made these booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And let me stop there before I read this next one and say the, the words right there are a little bit tricky. Okay? Because it does not mean that from the time of Joshua that they did not practice this festival. Because they did. If you go back, the last book that we went through was the book of Ezra. They practiced it in there, if you remember. I think it was in somewhere there in chapter 3, if I'm not mistaken. We could go back and look at it and, and make sure. But it is right there in the book of Ezra that they kept, yeah, 
the, in, in chapter 3, verse 4 of the book of Ezra, and they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written. So th- what, what he's saying is not that they hadn't kept the feast since Joshua, the son of Nun, but they hadn't, they hadn't kept it with this kind of enthusiasm and joy. They had not kept, there hadn't been a, a festival where they remembered the faithfulness of God as the people wandered in the wilderness. They hadn't kept it like this since then. That's a long time. It's a very, very long time to remember back and say, it hasn't been done like this before. And it was a great celebration. And I wrote down three things why I believe it was such a great celebration. Number one, because of the faithfulness of God throughout the history of his people. Now, what we're going to see next week, we don't have time to tackle it today. But in chapter 9, where I stopped in verse 5, if you, if you go on, which we will, Lord willing, next week, you'll notice it's going to be a very long, drawn-out prayer. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And we're going to look at it. Together, And this prayer is essentially um, recounting all of the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God for His people Israel in, throughout the history of God's people as they wandered in the wilderness, as they were brought into the promised land, and all that God had done was remembered and is going to be remembered, and that's what they're instructed to do in the Word. And that gives them... That gives rise to this great celebration. You find this feast of booze in uh, Deuteronomy 16, 13 to 17. Which, as I mentioned, was a feast of ingathering. It was the final harvest. And it was a yearly reminder of God's deliverance and protection and provision of his people. As he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, and he was brought them into the wilderness wanderings there they they sinned and that's the only reason they had to stay so long in the wilderness but he even there provided for them shelter the bible says that in all of their wanderings in the wilderness they always were provided for and i think one verse kind of sums it up by saying their feet didn't swell and something like their shoes didn't wear out or something like that and it was all because they wanted, they wanted to make clear that God had provided, God had protected, God had preserved them in all of their need. And this feast every year was to bring the people to remember the covenant faithfulness of God. The festival also um, is mentioned in connection with the millennial reign of Christ. In other words, what's coming in the future. Isn't that wonderful? For example, in, in the prophet Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16, we find this, this prophecy. Then everyone who survives all, of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, there's going to be war against Jerusalem. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of booths. It's interesting. That that one is the one that is mentioned. Because it is talking about, catch this now, the end gathering. It's the final gathering of the harvest. 
of the year. Where you remember the faithfulness of God. And in the faithfulness of God, as you bring in the harvest from the year and you're, you're storing that up. <laughs> you rejoice at the provision and the protection and the gracious mercy of God. And of course, we know that's what the return of Christ will be. He's coming to gather his people to himself. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And so, they, it was a great celebration because of the faithfulness of God throughout the history of his people. Number two, and you know where I'm going. Because of the faithfulness of God in their present lives as well. Because as they remembered back, how could you not remember back and say, you know, God has just been so faithful in the past. And I just remember so much of the love and the mercy and the provision and the protection of God. And not realize that right now, today, your heart's beating and your lungs are breathing and your brain is functioning because of the sustaining power of God. That you are a child of God today who believes in Jesus Christ because of the sustaining power and grace of God. And so they were presently rejoicing with great exuberance. Why? Why were they doing it? Because they had been brought back to the promised land. They had, they had rebuilt the temple of God in Jerusalem. The walls were back up. The gates were hung. The, the leadership was appointed. The word of God was at the center of the gathering. They had every reason to rejoice. And so they did with great celebration. Such as had not been done since the days of Joshua. And the third reason is because of obedience. I want to tell you a little secret here. Did you know that there is a lot of joy in obedience? See, Satan wants you to think that Christianity is like taking the bad medicine to feel better. That's not what it's like at all. If that's what you experience and call Christianity, you don't know Christianity. You haven't tasted the goodness of God. It's not like taking bad medicine to feel better. Nothing at all like that. Listen, obedience is the most joy-giving thing you will do. When, think about it. When you, when you were growing up, uh, if you were like me, one of the worst times of the week or the of the uh, month whenever it was, um, was report card day. Because you had to come home with the report card and they know it's coming. Somehow they always know. And you have to give it to them. Now, if you're like me, you're living it up to all up until that point. Because, you know, they didn't have the report card yet. So, I mean, they don't have it yet, so you're, you're in good shape. But but the day is coming that you got to give them the report card, right? And when it comes that day, I mean, it's just a dark cloud over the over the gloom of the universe. You got to go in and you got to show it, and it shows what you've been doing. It shows how you've been disobedient to what they want you to do and what they've instructed you to do. And there's no joy in that. There's no joy in that day. Well, it's the same way in the Christian life. When you obey your heavenly Father, I will promise you, your joy will increase. Because you feel good. It feels good to obey God. 
It feels really good. When you obey the Lord and, and then you come to pray to Him, I mean, you're not going to get sinlessly perfect or anything. But when you come to pray, I mean, there won't be this just, this burden of the weight of your guilt. You haven't prayed in weeks. You haven't opened your Bible in weeks. You haven't, uh, you haven't witnessed anybody in years. You, you're, you're not serving and obeying the Lord. And if you're not, I guarantee you, your prayer life is, is suffering as a result of it. And your joy is suffering. There is joy in obedience. And these people in Nehemiah's day, they were thinking back at the faithfulness of God in the history of the people of God. They were looking at their own lives and thinking, oh God, how thankful we are and how how joyful it is that you have brought us back to our homeland. You have rebuilt the temple, the walls, and look at us today. We're back. We're here. And they were filled with joy. And they were filled with joy because... They were being obedient for the first time in a long time. And that might be you today. Today might be the first time in a long time that you say, I'm going to be obedient today. Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you do them. There's no joy in disobedience. None. There's only momentary sensual pleasure. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Sound familiar? So here we have in the New Testament church, we have an ordinance, a, a, a festival, as it were, where we are commemorating and remembering the work of Christ on the cross. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so there's joy and happiness in remembering the gracious mercy and faithful faithfulness of God. There is Also joy and obedience. Number three, this is the final one. Shaped by the word. The word directs godly leaders. The word calls for remembering God's faithfulness. And thirdly, the word produces godly sorrow. So we're right back to almost where we were last week. It ends almost the same way. Look, if you will, in chapter 9. And the first couple of verses that we read together says on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And I don't need to tell you that that is a direct sign that these people are under great distress and sorrow. Why did they do that? Because it was it was an outward expression Of a broken heart. Have you ever had a broken heart. But you put a smile on your face. It's the opposite of that. 
they, when they came together under the word and the weight of the fact that they knew that they had sinned against God and God had punished them. And, and there was this mixture of joy and gladness with broken hearted contrition. They were, they were sad. They were sorrowful. It would, the word of God produced godly sorrow. And it says they separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So for three hours, the text says that they read the word of God. We're going to do that this morning. Three hour reading of the word. Who's up for it? Nobody. Okay. They read for three hours. Then for the next three hours, they confessed their sins. So you're ready to confess for the next three. That's what they did. Because the word produced this sorrow in them. And I call it godly sorrow because the Apostle Paul writes about godly sorrow versus um, earthly sorrow, for lack of a better word. In other words, you can be, you know, I'll tell you the difference. You, you, You can know the difference very easy. The difference is earthly sorrow is sorry because you got caught Godly sorrow is sorrow because you are guilty in the presence of God. And this is a godly sorrow. And the result of the word of God being read in their presence for three hours. I have uh, three things that it did and we close. It resulted in hopeful fasting. Hopeful fasting. Fasting. In verse 1 again it says they assembled with fasting, hopeful fasting. The reason I put that qualifier there, that characteristic of hopefulness, is because that's what fasting is. In the scriptures, fasting is a purposeful setting aside the normal things of life, whether it be food or um, whatever. I mean, you can fast from a lot of different stuff, television or internet or Whatever would kind of be a routine of yours on a daily basis because there is this burden that you have from God. Maybe it's something that you really want to see come to pass or you, you or it's a weight of guilt where you know you just haven't been living right. And fasting is filled with hope because you're seeking God. And you know that God is a merciful God. And God is a gracious God. And you know God is a powerful God. And therefore, they fasted with hope. Secondly, this word being read and producing this godly sorrow resulted, this godly sorrow from the word resulted in hopeful fasting and it resulted in humble confession. Humble confession. Verses 2 and 3. If you look at it there, it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from their foreigners. In other words, there were still some people that were intermarried with foreigners and they had to separate themselves from them and that's because you have to understand the nature of the people of God in the Old Testament they were instructed by God not to intermarry with any other nation because God told them that if they did they would be corrupted by that um, that influence in their lives one of the ways that they were to repent was to put away these foreign wives that they had taken and separate themselves from them. They stood and they confessed. 
the Bible says, their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And so it resulted in humble confession. They were willing to confess where they had broken God's commandments. When's the last time you did that? You see, a lot of things are missing almost completely from the evangelical church today. And I think it's because in the, in the, if, you look at, if you look at Sunday morning as the Sunday morning show, you don't have time for confession of sin. That, that messes everything up. <laughs> I mean, you're going you're gonna to stop and take time to hear brother so-and-so talk about what he did wrong this week? No, we, we, this is all about the entertainment that we bring to you on Sunday morning. If you, if you look at church that way, that's the reason that things like confession is almost completely gone because no, nobody feels like confessing amidst the show of entertainment that just seeks to make us feel happy in ourselves. Nobody's going to confess sin. But when the Word is at the center and when we gather uh, around the Word of God and we're seeking to have biblical experiences of the Word, then it might be that we would be broken and sorrowful to the point of hopeful fasting. It might be that we would be broken and sorrowful to the point of humble confession. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that everybody needs to come up here and air out all your dirty laundry for everybody. You know, you, you, you know, you stubbed your thumb this week and said a word. We don't need to hear about that. But I do believe that there are times that we should confess. And it might be that Sunday morning is not even really the place that we should do it. It might be better in the context of one brother or maybe a few brothers or a few sisters that you say, look, I'm really struggling with this in my life and I want you to pray for me and I want you to hold me accountable and help me to overcome this battle in my life. I want to confess it and I want to forsake it. In the book of James, chapter 5, listen to what he says. New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess and pray that you may be healed. So, it resulted in humble confession. Number three. It resulted in thankful worship. Thankful worship. So we get to end on a little bit of a happier note. In our text, as we go back to, to this last one, it resulted, this, this godly sorrow resulted in these three things. And the third thing is thankful worship. If you look at verses 3 to 5. In verse 3, they stood up in their place to read from the book of the law. For a quarter of the day, and that they made confession and worshipped, verse 3 says. They worshipped the Lord their God the other quarter of the day. And then if you look down at verse 5, it says that these Levites stood up 
And they, they said, they said to the people, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed. And then here's what they said. Blessed be your glorious name, O God, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I love that. Isn't that wonderful? That last phrase, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. In other words, our greatest and best attempt to praise God falls short of actually the worth of God. Because he says, you God and your name is above our praise. And so it resulted, this godly sorrow resulted in thankful worship. Ascribing to God honor and praise That he is worthy to receive. The broader context. That includes that prayer. That we're going to look at next week. They go on to remember and express. Their thankfulness. And praise to God. For his unfailing faithfulness to them. Even as they continue in that same prayer. To confess the constant failures of their ancestors. And of themselves. And this is fitting today, isn't it? It's very fitting that in a worship service like this, the Word of God is read and sung and prayed and preached. And when when we come under the Word of God, it does stuff to us. It breaks us because we're guilty. And then it heals us because of Jesus. And we can remember and look back over our lives. I I was just reading uh, yesterday as I was going to bed. I was reading about, from the book of Hebrews, how that Jesus Christ did two things. He does two things so that we can have a peaceful relationship with God. First of all, he died on the cross to pay for all of my sins. Isn't that wonderful? That I feel terrible when I sin. And it it, it could crush me. I could be crushed under the weight of that and just say, oh, I quit. I give up. But why don't I? Because the Bible tells me that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But you know the, the second thing that he does? The second thing that he does, I keep messing up. And you know what he's doing? He's right now in heaven praying for me. And praying for you. Interceding for you before the Father. So <laughs> you're guilty today. You came in here and you know you are. Two things you need to leave with. Jesus died to pay for your sins. And secondly, he's up there and he's right there before the Father. He says, my hands, my feet, my side, my blood, I paid for that. I'm praying for them. His face not going to fail. He's going to keep on. I'm going to strengthen him. I'm with you. That's what he says. That's how he strengthens us. And that's how we can leave Every Sunday morning under the word of God. It's heavy. (laughs) It weighs heavy on a sinner. But it also lightens our load when we look to Jesus. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your people. We thank you for those who have gathered in this room today. I don't know all of their needs, but you do. I don't know 
how the word needs to be specifically applied, but you do. And I pray that in these last few moments, you would take everything that we've heard from your word, sang, prayed, preached, that you would take it now. You would take it now and make it powerful, make it fruitful in each and every one of our lives, that we would be changed, that we would be encouraged to walk in faith and faithfulness to you, looking away from ourselves to you, to Jesus Christ, to his work on the cross, to your strength, to your power, to your promises, so that we can go out of here. Yes, understanding our guilt, but also understanding our forgiveness and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.